0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland, which I returned to after a couple of weeks in the United States. Flight, by the way, wasn't bad. Maybe 25 people on a 250-seat plane. Everyone was in masks. Might actually be the safest time to be on a plane, come to think of it. Anyway, while in the States, the debate over America's original sin of slavery was front and center and dominated the headlines pretty much anywhere you look, they still do. We at Breaking Views looked at it as we try to do through the lens of finance and business. Now, last Friday was Juneteenth, the celebration of the official end of slavery 155 years ago. On that day, my colleagues Anna Szymanski and I wrote a couple of columns on the matter of reparations. That's the question of whether the government owes a debt to the descendants of enslaved people. Anna looked at the arguments and calculations that have been mooted around this difficult issue, on which a majority of black Americans agree, but not yet all Americans, according to polls. I also wrote a column arguing why I think corporate America might actually lead the charge on settling this unhealed wound in the American psyche. Anna and I discussed these stories with John Foley in this week's Views Room. After that, John hands the mic back to me to discuss a deep-dive feature my colleague Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong published on the looming war over working from home. It's a great piece with lots of agenda-setting financial insight. So after listening to our discussion, I do hope you'll go to BreakingViews.com and give it a read.
1: One thing that's become really clear in all the conversations that we're having at the moment about racial justice is that there is a big economic divide that goes back centuries between, certainly in the United States, between black Americans and white Americans. And Rob and Anna, um, you've both been writing about this recently from the perspective of reparations reparations is, a, is a, a fascinating and controversial word here in the states, the idea that you have to pay back a debt um, to black Americans for the fact that this economy basically is built on their unpaid labor. Um, now you both looked at it from slightly different angles. Anna you've looked at literally the question of how one would pay reparations and Rob, you're taking kind of company's first view um, how companies can help. Anna, why don't you kick us off like explain to us what you what you found when you started asking the question of how much should they be and how can we pay them?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously an incredibly complicated question for multiple reasons. You know, one, it, you know, you're involving lots of estimates, lots of extrapolations, um, so I, you know, you you have to take all the numbers with a grain of salt. However, I still think they're pretty meaningful. You know, so you've had some academics who over the years have looked at how one might value, you know, the actual labor. That was done by enslaved Americans, at least during the period of time when you know America was an independent country. And the number you get with this really depends on the interest rate you use, obviously. Um, but you know, even if you're using like a 3% rate, which you can somewhat think of as like a penalty for the fact that this has not been paid for you know hundreds of years, you know, you still get to a number that's about the equivalent of the US GDP, which honestly I think frankly, makes some sense because, you know, if you look historically, the cotton, the cotton industry in the 19th century is really what allowed America to develop. And obviously that simply existed only because you had this unpaid labor source. So I, I don't think it's, it's unreasonable to say that much of the economy we have now, you know, would have been very hard to develop in the way we have it now if it had not been for this unpaid labor.
1: Right. So G- one times U.S. GDP sounds um, in the ballpark of fair, but presumably that's a, an electoral non-starter. It's going to be very difficult to get em- Americans to, to reallocate that much money. How, what other estimates are out there? And how do you how do you think about this in a kind of practical sense?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ways that you see a, lo- a number of groups of um, African-Americans and, um, you know, specifically people who've been looking at this, like Professor, Um Uh, William Darity at Duke, you know, he's looked at the racial wealth gap. And and that's something that people talk about a lot. And it's a it's a very real number we can use. And it so it makes the calculations a little bit easier and it makes it perhaps a little bit easier to also kind of justify it in the sense of saying, look, you know, this is the amount of wealth that is owned by white Americans. This is the amount of wealth that's owned by African-Americans. And it, there is a massive gap. I mean, yeah, you know, what is and, the gap? and it, it's, it's around 13 trillion. Yikes. So which is not surprising when you think, you know, you're you're not just talking about slavery, but you're talking about, you know, after slavery ends, you have this very brief period of reconstruction where you're supposed to get, you know, all slaves are, or all enslaved Americans were supposed to, or formerly enslaved Americans, were supposed to be getting land. But then that didn't happen. Then you had the development of these Jim Crow segregation laws, which lasted for decades. And then even once you start to get some civil rights laws passed, at the same time, you still have housing discrimination. You still have employment discrimination. And honestly, you still have those things to this day, not to the same extent, but you still have them. So it's it's really not surprising when you look at that, that you do have this massive gap. And and while spending on education is great, while a lot of other things you can do are great, the reality is this is an economic debt that has not been paid, and it's not just going to close by itself.
1: So, because um, okay, we can, I want to come back to like how we close that. In the meantime, Rob, you're thinking about this from a company perspective. Companies obviously don't have, you know, thirteen trillion of dollars to to smear around differently, but they do have a debt to be repaid, right? And um, one such debt seems to be getting repaid by getting rid of Aunt Jemima, and um,
0: yeah. I mean, that I was, the, yeah, so it. you saw it, the catalyst for this last week was that PepsiCo, which owns Aunt Jemima, which is a 130-year-old pancakes and syrup brand, um, which used to be part of Quaker Oats, bought it in the 1920s, you know, was has basically been under pressure because of its use of um, a woman, a black woman, um, who 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 evoked back in the day the sort of what they called the mammy stereotype, the the, the happy um, uh, servant who served young uh, white children their their breakfast and that kind of thing. This goes back quite quite some time. Um, there was even um, actually a minstrel song uh, that it was based on. This that the name Jemima was based on. Um, so it's it's it goes back. I guess that it's what's interesting. So we have this issue of reparations for. Uh, the original sin of slavery. I mean, when you look at companies it's a little different, I mean, many of these, first of all, these companies that are run today, you know, their predecessor companies 150, 100 something years ago um, might've used the likenesses of, you know, that we consider racist today, uh, stereotypically racist today. It's, I mean, it's not necessarily a reparation for slavery. It's a sort of reparation for, I don't know what you call it, cultural appropriation or something like that, right? So it's it's slightly different. Um, although of course related, and and what it's what my point in, in writing about this was not so much to 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 try to figure out what is going to. I mean, Anna has come up with these sweeping these giant numbers that people have tried to put on the cost of reparations. But more to you know, when, you, when you're a company, you can be targeted by consumers, consumer boycotts, as we started to see with the Aunt Jemima thing last week. Uncle Ben's, which is a I think owned by Mars, uh, it's a rice brand that has a, the picture of a sort of a, uh, African American, actually, it was a maitre de hotel, some, some from Chicago after the war, but but still, it evokes a sort of that stereotype. You know, y- you do face a problem potentially with becoming the subject of boycotts. I mean, consumers speak quickly, and if you look, uh, Black Lives Matter, and you look at some other um, a- activists have actually started to do this very effectively, and it's a thing we've seen. You've written about it with gun violence, for instance, um, where where certain companies were targeted, and you know, you go right back to. That I think it was the speech before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King was basically making a case for um, African-Americans to, to use their pocketbook just to, to boycott the purchase of products by Seal test milk, Coca-Cola and others. It was actually, I think, the, the, the speech he made the night or the day before he was, he was killed. So there is a sort of economic, um, There is a there's a reason that companies need to be aware of this. And look back and in, into their their past, and look at, at at whether or not they, you know, their predecessor companies played some role, or even the brands that they have today, like Auntie Jemima, Jemima, still have some link to that, that. That in some way could be viewed as um, them profiting from race, a form of racism. And it's quite interesting when you look at companies. I'm like I mean, if, I'm trying to think about it, this. Is what's interesting with Anna's these different n- numbers that Anna is citing, they're so wide, right? You, had, you have the, the quadrillion number in there. And <laughs> right, the, which,
2: which, I mean, to be fair, like, you know, I, it, it is an enormous number. And, you know, obviously you have to take compound interest with a grain of salt, but it is just to somewhat, you know, bring up the point that it's almost an unimaginable
0: amount. Right, right. right but we're, With a company, it's more imaginable. It's more calculable. Like if you were to go back, again, I got, I got some back, uh, Below on this, but I sort of looked at the. Uh, I, it wasn't really about PepsiCo, but I took the example of if, if the if the woman on whom uh, the Aunt Jemima uh, products were based, uh, and, she, and it was a woman named Nancy Green, I guess, who was born in slavery in Kentucky, Kentucky in 1834, um, and then there were other like women whose likenesses were used to market the products. But if you thought that they were owed some royalty or some sort of, they were not properly compensated. You went back. I mean, you could go back and say, OK, let's it's, let's say that they have a royalty of X percent and then try to calculate what that would look like, plus the interest, plus the um, compound uh, compounding of of those that the, the royalties. You'd come to some huge number. In fact, what I couldn't get for this piece was um, the, the uh, there was actually a, a a lawsuit filed by the descendants of some of these women whose likenesses were used uh, by French by Aunt Jemima, um And they argued that they were. There was something like two billion of unpaid royalties and a share of future profits. Um, the suit was thrown out in 2015 by a Chicago um, court with with prejudice. I mean, it was it was obviously a, I mean, based on what I've read about it, it looks like it was a poorly constructed suit lawsuit. And in fact, one of the one of the descendants was saying, "Well, we didn't have enough money to hire like a proper lawyer, so we did it ourselves." But it would be interesting to look and figure out. Well, where did Maybe the $2 billion's right. I mean, it's probably too much to expect Pepsi to pay, but some number, some some reasonable calculation about, about this, it's not out of the realm of possibility. And it would certainly be more than the $5 million over the next five years that Pepsi has offered um, to pay to, you know, black- well, to, to, to issues around this.
1: And it would also be fascinating to see how this goes down with shareholders, right? Because we're in the middle of this broader debate that's been going on for a lot longer about whether companies have a duty, not just to their shareholders, but to stakeholders. But so far, we've tended to think about stakeholders being employees and customers. And now we're talking about stakeholders, including a kind of, you know, people who've been historically disenfranchised or or had their labor or image appropriated by companies. You're talking about basically cutting them a slice of the cake, possibly quite a big slice, which comes from shareholders in one sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, but it fits right into the whole zeitgeist of, you know, of uh, what do you call it? Capitalism with stakeholder capitalism rather than pure shareholder capitalism. It does fit into it. And certainly, you know, if you you take the view that, well, a consumer backlash would cost us a lot, it could be potentially existential or, or really bad in some respects, or the idea that long, you know, civil unrest around this issue could really be bad for business and bad for society then getting ahead of it and saying okay look we're going to do our part whether it's pepsi or brooks brothers or bank of america or anyone who has again way going way back predecessor companies that that made mistakes in the case of bank of america for instance using slaves as collateral for loans or insurance companies that insured slave owners Um, you know there there is that you could sort of see it's just a part of potentially getting ahead of it and being part of the healing And and rather than being sort of on the back foot.
2: I also think there's something interesting about the kind of framing it in a slightly different way, because I think, you know, right now you sometimes get a little bit of the framing of like, you know, companies almost like being generous in the sense of like, okay you know, we're going to do these good things. We're going to which is good. I mean, companies, you know, funding scholarships or giving money to to uh, to good causes that that's great. But there's also something when it becomes. You know, it's not a matter of generosity. It's saying we did something wrong. We benefited. We made money off of, you know, someone who wasn't paid of someone's likeness who wasn't paid. And, and, and so I do think that that framing is interesting because then it's almost a little bit more, frankly, like a penalty, which is something that you don't really have a choice in the matter normally of paying. You know, you're, you're somewhat
1: forced. Or a liability.
0: To. Right. How is you know, this thing the- is going to hang over everybody. This is this is going to hang out there, you know, to some degree uh, until there is, I mean, I, I'm not sure how it gets resolved, but until there is some movement towards resolution, I don't think you, I think you're going to continue to see this as a contingent, you know, a contingent liability on the balance sheet of the United States and its companies.
1: I just, while we're, while we're talking about calculations, there's one thing I just want to come back to on your piece, Anna. You, you did some number crunching, not just on the size of the wealth gap, but on what it would take to close it. Just walk us through that a bit. How much will it cost the white population of America to make the black population whole well, in, in the sense of being on an even footing? Yeah,
2: I mean, it, a, so on the one hand, if you just kind of say, okay, it's about it's around, you know, roughly 800,000 per African-American household, you, you know, you're, you're talking around, I think, 12% of essentially white wealth. Now, you know, that, that can be framed in more than one way. You know, you, you can think of that in the sense of, you know, we close the racial wealth gap by having a certain amount of white wealth shifted to African-American households. Now, I, I don't actually think that would be possible <laughs> in that in the exact way, because I don't know how you would uh, form a tax policy that wouldn't uh, be deemed unconstitutional if you tried to do that. However, you know, there are other ways to do it where it's it's, you know, simply additional spending now that you know that that's going to be a different number depending on which way you look at it but you know it, it is it is a significant amount of money and it's something that the government may not end up doing 100% of it but it could probably do a significant amount and again it wouldn't be something that would be done overnight it would probably be something that would be done over about a decade but it is something that is you know long past overdue and the reason I think I'm 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 paring away from your question a little bit is because I don't necessarily just want even though what we have seen in the United States for centuries, frankly, is a shift of wealth from African American labor and, and many other things to white people. However, I don't necessarily want this to simply be a matter of saying like money is being taken from white people because I think the the politics of that 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 get really get really messy. It could be more a matter of this is something the government did wrong. These were these were policies that the United States government allowed, and it is up to the United States government to fix it.
1: And fixing that is only the beginning, as you said.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to, I mean, I should, yeah, I should preface that. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to be able to fix, there's no way to fix it. However, you can at least try to help a part of it.
0: I guess I would just, one thing I noticed when I was doing the, my reporting for this was the, that the public sentiment is not, anywhere near, you know, it isn't a majority of black Americans support the idea of the government paying reparations, but just 29% of overall Americans agreed in this poll that had come out in October. Now, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, the George Floyd incident, all of this may shift that. But, you know, if, if we, if you know, don't expect Congress, even with 52% of Americans agreeing any, and anything, as you've seen with gun violence, all sorts of things, doesn't mean Congress will do it. That's why I sort yeah. of like you know I, I I sort of thinking well what what else can be done and that's what led me to think well maybe some companies can be ahead but as John actually pointed out in his piece about um, the Supreme Court last week you know government it's you know, government is almost never the at the vanguard of these things right
1: no Jeff, and man, the I fact think that we're right. having these conversations
0: yeah. okay go
2: ahead. sorry I'm sorry uh, Rob no I think you're right and I do think that gov- that companies that can act much more quickly taking a role can put a lot of pressure on governments, especially because, you know, CEOs do have a lot of power with legislators, right? Mm-hmm. So they can push that. And you're totally right that reparations still overall are not necessarily that popular. However, that number is about double where it was, I think, maybe less than 10 years ago. So it is it is moving.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, one thing that's clear is that the conversation itself has changed, and that is undoubtedly a good thing. Thanks very much, Anna Szymanski and Rob Cox. Thanks, John. Thank Thanks.
0: Pete Sweeney, I see you are not in an office. You are at home, as I record this with you, yet uh, you have written a deep dive on, on the, the battle for working from home. Um, perhaps, I guess you're showing your colors on this one by working from home rather than the office.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it's been the talk of the town in Hong Kong, especially, ever since, like, this place has been locked down since since January, more or less. And, you know, in Hong Kong, people have been trapped in these tiny apartments, forced to telecommute. Reviews have been very mixed. And for my part, obviously, I live out on, well, not so obviously, but I live out in this little remote island with a fishing village of 7,000 people. So it's been a pretty positive experience for me. But reporting this, what was noticeable was how few people were really having a particularly good time. And that wasn't just the
0: employees, but also their managers. The litany of complaints was quite interesting. This piece you've done, which is called Phoning It In, but it's a, you know, it's quite a long, it's a deep dive. We haven't done too many of these, so this is special. I mean, but but it is really well-timed. Everybody is now thinking about going back to the office. You've got a lot of the, the, the investment banks and financial firms, you know, our sort of key customers and readers, they're all staging these returns. Even I noticed one of our colleagues, Sharon, was in the office today in Hong Kong. So what's your view? I mean, not that I don't want people to read your your exhaustive argument here, but I mean, why don't you try to boil it down as to what, you know, what's your sort of, what are your most important findings are?
3: Well, the first and foremost thing is just to highlight the fact of what has happened, which is that, you know, one of the hardest things to do with any large organization or even a small one is force through technological change and make changes in human behavior. So you've got all this software and all these tools that are supposed to make life easier. You know, they've been around for years and managers just roll their eyes. Oh, here's another collaboration app, here's another project management tool. It's not gonna help. And in the past they were right, you know, like it was quite difficult to implement this stuff. You look at like the productivity improvements like they it's been very unclear um what COVID has done is forced everybody force fed people you know some of this technology and made them all be on the same page and learn how to use it once it is also just because of the strain like the amount of people using it at once it is it has forced these companies to clean up a lot of, of terrible code, these security holes. I mean, we've had problems at Zoom, you know, that have been very public. So basically what we've had is like a kind of this cleanup, which has actually demonstrated that for some companies, at least, the technology, at least, and the practices are available for you to do more of this. You don't necessarily have to do a binary thing where you shut up your office and everybody works from home. But you can now do a lot more of it, right? And it prompts a lot of thought, especially since it's happening in the midst of this huge worldwide recession slowdown caused by the pandemic where you've got especially small companies for whom rent is kind of a big chunk i mean if you own your headquarters whatever but like you're paying a lot of money in rent you're really going to start thinking like wow i've just had you know my my teams like working out of their living rooms you know they've been a little bit cranky about it you know maybe they were more productive maybe just as productive maybe slightly less but how much rent can i save by not renting out that space anymore and I mean, everybody's got to think about what they're going to do now. And it's prompting this debate that I think in individual companies where, which is really interesting to hear what people are thinking. Um, some people are just like, this is terrible and we'll never be able to maintain our culture or like engineer, train people, mentor young employees. You know, we can't do it without the office. And other people are like, well, you know, we're tech and all our new employees do everything virtually anyway. So let's just ditch the office and save the money and, and we can all live in the ether chatting
0: chatting right, on, right. on Zoom or Teams. I mean, you talk about, you know, you, you mentioned that this, uh, you, you quote Bruce Flatt, who we had on Virtual Newsmaker a couple of weeks ago or two weeks ago. He basically was saying it's impossible to build a culture. I know you had uh, Brian Moynihan from Bank of America said similar things. And I mean, there is some truth to that. No, I mean, that it's just to, to try to get that camaraderie or that esprit de corps, or whatever you want to call it. It's quite difficult, as you and I know, managing teams and, and, our, and the crew of breaking views around the world. Um, so, on balance, do you think that this is sort of like a thing that will work for some companies? But generally speaking, most companies will be going back to the office and going back to some sort of normal. I mean, the polls you
3: have, like Xerox and Lenovo would run polls, and most everybody expects some sort of adjustment, right? Because you've seen what's possible, you know, maybe you go to like a four-day work week in the office, maybe it's three days, you know, maybe you have a lot more flexibility. But, like, I mean, you know, it's been kind of made clear that you don't have to go back 100%, that, like, this technology is available, and at least on the margins, you can have change.
0: And, like, in the aggregate, that could produce a big change. Well, let me go back to Lenovo. um, you mentioned yeah. the Lenovo server. You've got a nice graphic in the in the piece here. It says reasons for not working from home or finding work from home has negative impact on productivity. The first one, 42 percent of respondents say distractions yep. and 32 percent say work life separation. I mean, difficult. Now, it's quite interesting the way certain countries found that less problematic than others. But um Right. I mean, that that alone is quite interesting. Um, well, that, your social that,
3: culture matters, right? I mean, like in yeah. China, all the technology they've come up with, they, Alibaba has this new thing, Ding Talk, and it is just viewed as like this satanic, life-destroying piece of technology, you know, by by employees and by students, because it's been designed to be extremely intrusive. You can have to, like, clock in and clock out. Um, it registers where you are geographically when you do. It it's sends all so, these it's the 996. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely yeah. But I mean, like if you're in France or like Southern, you know, I, I, not to be stereotypical about the French, but I mean, if you're in a society where like, you know, people value their private time, this can be turned into a way to create like more private time, kick a bit more money back to people's pockets in terms of like this shadow work that people talk about the work you do to get to work. I mean, especially in the States. I mean, in Southern California, I saw a number that people spend as much as $10,000 a year just getting to and from work every day. I mean, yeah. I was in Denver and I drove an hour and a half each way. That adds up if you like 200 hours a week in a, a month, sorry, 200 hours a year commuting, you know, is basically like the equivalent of a five-week vacation if you give that right. back to people. But not all companies yeah. are going to want to do that, right? And yeah. if you look at the battle between labor and capital in general, what has been happening is more labor has been getting squeezed out for less money. You know, that has been the trend, uh, not of like, let's turn this technology into something that, that makes people's lives easier, but rather let's make it so people work from their toilets and their, you know, their kitchens,
0: and so they're always in touch. Yeah, I'm not sure we want to go that far. Um, but yeah, you no, know, you raised the question of productivity growth. I mean, where does you, you sort of you even got a pretty interesting chart in there that shows that labor productivity growth has been slowing in major economies. I'm just wondering what what's the relevance of that to this idea of working from home? Is, is that your point that they're ex, they're actually getting more time, but more time doesn't mean better productivity?
3: Exactly. Right? Yeah. No. And that's the that's the trick. So. It depends on how the company is going to define productivity, right? I mean, I don't think these economic statistics, I mean, they're interesting, but like for the decision-making maker, they're not that useful. You aren't measuring your employees' productivity in terms of GDP. You want us to look at your bottom line and like, are we getting more profitability out of these people? And like really the challenge going forward is for people not to decide whether we work from home or not, but how you structure this environment that people aren't used to on both sides so that, that like when people are working home, they're more effective. You know, when they go to the office, they're more efficient. I mean, I just point out that all these defendants of the office and and like office culture and whatnot. I mean, there's plenty of companies that have worked from offices and, and have totally failed. Like Yahoo tried working from home. You would expect this tech company to be successful at it. And they they pulled back. Right. They said, uh, we need to do a cultural transformation and we need to get everybody on the same page. And they're going to have to do it an office. And they brought everybody back. And that didn't really work. So there's no magic wand that you can wave using any of this stuff that's going to solve your company problem. But I mean, I think at the very least, it'll prompt a a rethink, you know, at the management level
0: that is overdue. Right, right. I mean, culturally, you talk at the end about how the, you know, people like to tackle tasks in tandem. There's sort of there's elements of the, the that we can't actually recreate working from home, even with all the great technology. I mean, what is your sense of that? I mean, that's the interesting
3: thing. I mean, if you look at like through history, people first looked at like the invention of the machines as something that was going to allow people to not work at all. Right. We were all going to be like Greek philosophers sitting there eating grapes and, and machine slaves are going to take care of us. But people don't appear to actually want that. Um, They really right. like going to. Work. And, and interestingly enough, I mean, like you talked about flat and, you know, some of these guys who are obviously invested in commercial real estate have have a bit of their book in, at risk. if like everybody goes to work from home. But what's interesting is like David Gurley of Symphony, you know, which is this financial chat tool. And I mean, he's banking money off of all of this. Right. Like everything is going his way in terms of like Wall Street being locked down and having to rely on secure communications, you know, to have traders talking to each other in this way that's compliant yeah. and logged. And even he was 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 wistful, you know, that he said that he had missed, you know, the just casual accidental contact where ideas get spurred just by running into somebody on the way to the water cooler or whatever. And I thought that was quite striking that everybody was just like, well, yeah, I want to get back to the office and and see the people I I work with. And that's just a fundamental need that people can cater to. You just can't abuse it like in China with this nine nine six thing, which is the extreme.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, Pete. Next time we do this, I I hope to see you in the office. Your background. I was there this morning. I was new. Okay. (laughs) Rather than Lantau, uh, Pete Sweeney, uh, dining room behind me, (laughs) behind you. All right. Thanks a lot, Pete. Talk to you soon. Ciao. That's our show for this week. Thanks to John Foley and Anna Shemansky in New York, and Pete Sweeney in Lantau. Hats off to our Uber producer, Freddie Joyner, as well as Amanda Gomez in New York, and to Jamie Lowe in Hong Kong. Our final thanks, of course, go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Stay healthy.